did the stories of the Torah really happen? So to begin with, let's be clear what this class is not about. Our goal today is not going to be to ask, is the Torah divine truth? Is the Torah the word of God? To be clear, I believe that the Torah is divine truth and the Torah is the word of God. That is a fundamental belief in Judaism. If we don't believe the Torah to be true, if we don't believe the Torah to be divine and the word of God, then all of Judaism falls away. There is no Judaism because every commandment that we have in Judaism and every belief and everything comes from the Torah. So if we don't believe the Torah to be true, God forbid, then we do not, then that throws out all of Judaism. So to be clear, we believe the Torah is true. The Torah is the word of God dictated by God to Moses and passed down accurately, perfectly, without any corruption, from generation to generation. Now, how do we know that? How do we know that the Torah is true? How do we know that God gave us the Torah? That is a very important question. In fact, we could say one of the most important questions in Judaism, without which Judaism entirely falls away. But that is not the subject of our talk today. God willing, we will have another class where we will talk about how we know that the Torah is true. And that's really a subject of its own. We've discussed it before, not in this class, but we will, God willing, do another class where we will talk about how we know our evidence that the Torah is true. But we're not going to discuss that today. Rather, we are going to accept the divine truth of the Torah as a prerequisite for our discussion today. If you're, for whatever reason, unsure about the divine truth of the Torah, I'd love to point you to places you could search more about it or talk to you more about it after the class. Um, but for now, let's presume that the Torah is the Word of God as we have it today. I also don't intend to discuss history or our modern um, understanding of history, and archaeology, and try to explain how the various stories of the Torah, such as the Exodus, fit with our modern understanding of ancient history. Now that's a fascinating discussion. Many, many books and documentaries have been put together on that topic of how our current understanding of history our modern understanding of history and our archaeological discoveries and other findings um, fit and our understanding of how people lived back then fits with the various stories in the Torah. Does it fit? Does it not fit? That is a fascinating discussion that I don't intend to talk about. Uh, while it is fascinating, much the truth is much of our modern knowledge and understanding of history is highly speculative. Historians don't like when you say that, but it's true. 
Much of it is highly speculative. In other words, history is like a big, big puzzle, like a 5,000-piece puzzle, that you only have a handful of the pieces. You only have maybe 100 pieces in the 5,000-piece puzzle. Very tough to do a puzzle. Sorry? It's very, very tough. So it's like you only have 100 pieces in a 5,000-piece puzzle, and then with those pieces you have to try to draw what the rest of the puzzle looks like. And so much of history is highly speculative. And while it's a very interesting subject and a very important subject, and I'm a big fan of history, personally I, I, I enjoy history and have studied a lot of history, but it's a very interesting subject, and it may be fascinating how it fits with the Torah, but it's important to recognize that our modern history and even archaeological findings are very, very, very limited and shouldn't really, while they're interesting, shouldn't really be relevant to the question of the truth of the stories of the Torah. So we're not going to talk about whether the Torah is divine. We're going to accept that for our class for today, the fact that the Torah is the divine, the word of God. We're also not going to talk about how the Torah fits with modern, our modern understanding of history and archaeology. My goal is rather, in today's class, when we ask the question, did the stories of the Torah really happen, to ask from the perspective of a Jewish believer, a Jewish person of faith, who believes in the Torah. If we believe in the Torah and believe in Judaism, then do we also, by extension, believe in every single story and every detail in the story in the Torah that it actually happened as described or not? So that's the question that we are going to try to address today. Does belief in the divinity of the Torah then expect us or result in the belief in every single story of the Torah and every detail in every story of the Torah? So, to be clear, among the fundamental beliefs in Judaism is not just that the Torah is divine, as we mentioned earlier, without believing that the Torah is the word of God, there is no Judaism. Judaism only exists as a religion, as a belief, if you believe that the Torah itself is true. But when we say that Judaism is a belief that the Torah is true, it's not just a belief that the general, story, the general Torah is true. It's not just a belief that the commandments of the Torah are commandments given to us by God. If the Torah was truly is true, if the Torah was divinely dictated to Moses by God, and Moses wrote word for word, for word verbatim as God dictated to him, then every single word in the Torah would be the word of God. And so therefore, our belief, our fundamental belief in Judaism, and the basic belief in Judaism and Torah, which is, stands at the very fundamental basis of Judaism, is that every single word of the Torah is divine. If it is divine, if it is the word of God, it is correct and true. God wouldn't lie to us, so it has to be true. So, were someone to suggest that parts of the Torah, 
details in the Torah, God forbid, are not correct, not true, then they would in effect be putting into question every single word of the Torah. Because how do you know only this word's not true? Maybe this part is not true also. If you say one commandment, or one part of a commandment is not divine, well then maybe another commandment. How do you know? You could start picking and choosing what you like, what you think is true and what you think isn't true. Who knows? Then that throws out the entire divinity of the Torah. And therefore, the Talmud writes, that if someone were to question even one word in the Torah, the divinity of even one word in the Torah, it would be out of the pale of acceptable Jewish belief. Maimonides gives an example. If somebody in a couple places in the Torah gives us genealogy, not even Jewish genealogy, genealogy of Jacob's brother Asaph, why the Torah discusses it as a subject of its own, but the Torah discusses the genealogy of Jacob's brother Asaph. If you believe that one detail in that genealogy is incorrect and not divine, not from God, even though it's very minor, does it really matter who was whose child? Does the detail of who was whose sibling? Does the detail of genealogy matter in the bigger picture of the Torah? Technically not. But if you question one detail in the genealogy of the described in the Torah, suggesting that it's incorrect, then you can question every other part of the Torah. Maybe the words of the first words of the Ten Commandments, Anochi Hashem Elokecha, I am the Lord your God, is incorrect. What makes these words any more correct than these words? So therefore, it is clear that part of the fundamental beliefs of Judaism, the beliefs that Jews have always believed um, as part of the beliefs of Judaism, is not only that the Torah itself is the word of God and divine, but that every single word of the Torah is divine, including all the stories of the Torah. Every single story of the Torah dicta- uh, that, was writ- that is written in our Torah is dictated by God to Moses, and Moses wrote it down as God said it. So it is the word of God. And if that word is missing from our Torah scroll, even though it's just about genealogy, it doesn't seem very important. If that word is missing, the whole Torah scroll is not kosher. Because one letter is off, the Torah scroll is not kosher. That's how we ensure it never gets corrupted. You mess up a letter, the whole thing's no good. So, so we, we believe, Judea, Jews believe, Judaism believes, fundamental to Judaism, is that every single word of the Torah is divine, is the word of God. Therefore, true. If it's a word of God, it has to be true. Every single story, with every single detail in it, is the word of God. Yet, while every word in the Torah is the word of God and divine, we can still debate the meaning of the words of the Torah. We can ask, Is every detail in the Torah, is every detail in the stories of the Torah meant to be taken at face value exactly as written? Or could some stories and details be metaphors, lessons for us? Or maybe mean something else than what they appear to me? Never actually happened as described. 
We weren't there. Yeah, so if it's written there, we have to believe it. That it actually happened. Well, what it means can be debated, right? We can, while we can say the words are divine, we can debate the meaning of the words. Yes, Lewis. Is the same true of the entire Tanakh? Mm-hmm. I'm focused on the Torah today because it's the, we believe it's the word of God. The Tanakh was written by, the rest of Tanakh was written by humans, though we believe divinely inspired and therefore holy, um, but written by humans nonetheless. Um, but yes, we believe every word of the Tanakh is true also, because it was divinely inspired. Um, and, but I'm going to focus today on the Torah. Yes? But words, the meaning of words change over time. Yes. Human yes, we can firstly debate what the words actually mean, right. and we can debate how to read it, what it actually means, and then we can also debate whether it should be taken at face value, should you, does it mean what it says, once we know what it says? Or does it have some sort of deeper meaning? Or does it mean something that we no longer, uh, that is no longer practiced or no longer practiced? So there may be words in the Torah that refer to things that we don't even know exactly what they are. Say items and plants or animals. The Torah doesn't speak of such a thing. Yeah, not in the Torah. Not that I'm aware of. Debbie? Yes. So whether it is those things really happened or not, imagine that man for a moment wrote the Torah, um, but it's teaching us how we should live our lives in a good way. Isn't that the most important thing? You have a very good point. Um, You're going back to the question of whether the Torah was divine and you're suggesting there may still be value for in the Torah even were it not divine. I think you have a good point. I really don't want to address the question today of whether the Torah is divine because it requires its own subject. Um, but I don't want to leave your question hanging. So just very briefly, we could talk about it more afterwards. Um, very briefly, if the Torah is just a book of good suggestions, then it's no better than any other self-help book out there. If it's man-written, then it's no better than The Seven Habits or any other great book out there. Okay. Okay, but it's not a religion. Just a great self-help book. But that, let's, let's move away from that topic for now. Yes. So when it was given to us, it, it was given without the vows. And that's where there's a lot of room for interpretation. We have, the Torah was, the Torah was given with an oral tradition. Um, we spoke about that in a class we did a few months ago. The vowels and the basic meaning of most of the words are part of our oral tradition, and there isn't any room for debate and interpretation. Um, once we know the word and the vowels, we can still debate, and the basic interpretation, sometimes we can still debate interpretation. So there are clearly parts of the Torah that were not ever meant to be taken at face value. For example... The Talmud tells us that Dibra Torah Lashon Havai, the Torah speaks with exaggerations. For example, 
the Torah says, Arim bitzorot bashamayim, cities that are fortified to the heavens. That would mean it has walls around the fortified that go up to the heaven. Now you can't build a wall to the heaven. Nowadays we do have buildings that go up at least to the clouds. But you can't really build a wall to the heaven. So what? So clearly it's an exaggeration. That's okay. God spoke, as the Talmud says, Torah God spoke in the language of man. People, it's human way, humans speak like that with exaggeration. We know we don't really mean it. When we say someone says an exaggeration, everyone takes it at that as an exaggeration. Nobody takes it at face value. So God speaks like that. The Torah is written like that, where it says certain things like fortified to the heavens. Of course they're not fortified to the heavens. They were just highly fortified. It's a way, it's human speech that the Torah is employing. So there are times where the Torah clearly writes things that are not possible, nor are ever intended to be taken at face value, just like humans speak all the time, and we say things that are not meant to be taken at face value. They're clearly an exaggeration. Another, another group of things in the Torah that are not meant to be taken of face, at face value is the Torah often refers to God with human body parts, hands, fingers, eyes, ears. It speaks of God having human emotions. Anger, happiness, regret. Now in Judaism we believe that God is absolute, an absolute being, with no form, no human experience. And that's written clearly in the Torah. Parashat Vethanan, that there is in the book of Deuteronomy, that God has no form whatsoever, no form, no detail. God doesn't have any human form for sure, and, and no human experience. Yet, the Torah uses that kind of terminology as a metaphor. It doesn't mean literally God's hand. God doesn't have hands. It's a metaphor, the power of God. God doesn't get angry. It's a metaphor for God's response. A way for us humans to better understand it because we struggle to understand the infinite. We struggle to understand God. So all the times that it refers to God in humanistic form, it's never meant to be taken at face value. Now, I hope to one day do a class on exactly that subject of why the Torah refers to God in human form um, and what exactly it means. So hopefully we'll do a class that's a subject of its own. Um, but we definitely believe that all those things are never meant to be taken at face value. Yes, Debbie? So when they Not meant to be taken at face value. So We're going to do a class, God willing, on that subject, on that question. We're in God's image in various ways. There's various answers to that question, but clearly we're not physically in God's image because God is not physical. No, I mean, if God is not physical, mm-hmm. then is it just some spirit in the air? Like, God is not some spirit in the air. God is an absolute being, is all existence. Everything. Let's talk about it afterwards. Okay. (laughs) So, it's therefore clear 
that there are some details in the Torah that were never meant to be read at face value. We're meant to be understood in context. Places where the Torah speaks in exaggeration. Places where the Torah speaks of God in a humanistic form. Now, we should point out, as Lewis pointed out, that the Torah was given to us with an oral interpretation. And we spoke some months ago, we did a class on the oral Torah. And uh, we spoke then about how we believe that the oral Torah is an essential part of the Torah given to us with Moses, uh, from Moses with the rest of the Torah. And at times, the oral tradition conflicts the simple meaning of the words. And the words must be understood within the context of the oral interpretation. There are dozens of such examples throughout the Torah where the oral tradition contradicts the literal reading of the word of the Torah. And it's not meant to be read that way. That is not what the Torah meant. Perhaps the most classic example of that is when the Torah says that somebody who harms another person pays ayin, tachas ayin, an eye for an eye. Our Torah is, our oral tradition is very clear that that means they pay the value of the limb that they damaged. They don't, we don't knock out the person's limb. Our oral tradition is very clear about that. Although a literal reading of the Torah may lead to a different conclusion, that is not what the Torah means. And there are many other such examples where our oral tradition makes it very clear that certain verses in the Torah are not meant to be taken at face value. So we now know, just to summarize, that we believe, Judaism believes, that the Torah is divine, is the word of God, Every single word of the Torah without exception is divine, is the word of God dictated to Moses by God. And so every single word of the Torah is then true. Even minor details such as genealogy are true. They were given to us by God. And yet not every word in the Torah is literal. There are clearly places where the Torah exaggerates, clearly places where the Torah speaks of God in a fashion that is not meant to be taken at face value because it goes against the the fundamental Jewish belief of God being an absolute being. And there are many places in the Torah where the Torah, where our oral tradition makes it clear that the words are not meant to be taken at face value. Carol? That is a very good question. Is that just a way to describe something that we can So what should be taken at face value and what not? So let's try going through various parts of the Torah and try to figure out what should be taken at face value and what should not. Again, it's clear that if the Torah is clearly exaggerating, such as speaking of cities fortified to the heavens, then... There's, there's no miracles there. There's no, um, no reason to believe um, it literally. Um, then clearly it shouldn't be taken at face value. When the Torah speaks of God in humanistic form, it should not be taken at face value. When our oral tradition clarifies it in a certain way, it should not be taken at face value. What about the other, the rest of the Torah? What, should, what stories do we believe actually happen? And what could be just a metaphor? So, let's start at the beginning. The Torah starts off in Genesis with the story of creation. Do we believe that God created the world? 
So one of the basics of Judaism, one of the basic fundamental beliefs of our faith, is that God created our world and controls it. Without the belief in creation, there would be no Judaism. If God would not be our creator, but just something out there that asked us to do some things for him, why would we listen? The only reason why we believe we should listen to God is because he created us. He made us for that purpose. So we definitely believe that God created our world. Not only created our world, but continues to control us and continues to control our universe, without which there would be no belief in creation. Now, for the past 150, little more, years, there has been a big debate on how to resolve the Jewish belief, and really the religious belief, we could say, in creation, as described in the Torah, with what's called the modern theory of evolution. There's a modern theory on how the world came about, um, based on, um, it started off as just a theory of evolution, but over the years it's developed into um, how the universe came about, the Big Bang Theory, how evolution, how the species, various species came about. And there's various parts to that theory, and it's become, it's accepted as final, kind of accepted theory in science today. How does that fit with the Jewish belief in creation. So some time ago already we did a class on how evolution fits with creation or doesn't fit, how to resolve the contradiction if it's at all possible. Um, So we did a class on that topic and it's on the podcast and I encourage you if you don't remember the details um, to go back to it. Um, But we definitely do believe that God created the world. That's one of the fundamentals of Judaism. In that class, we discussed the question as to did God, the Torah describes the creation being in six days. Are the six days literal six days as we know them? Are they not? We discussed that then. Um, What is the true age of our universe? Is it billions of years? Is it just 5,000 years as the Torah, as our Jewish traditions tell us? What exactly is it? So we did a whole class where we discussed that in great detail. I don't want to get into it now because it's a class of its own. Um, But definitely, we believe in creation. Now, the Torah gives us a lot of details on exactly how the world was created in six days. Some of those details are simply impossible. For example, the Torah says that on the first day, God created light. Now, light has to come from somewhere. Every light must come, something must generate that light. The Torah says that the sun and the moon and the stars were created on the fourth day of creation. So what light was there then on the first day of creation? How can you have light without something generating? So commentaries offer many explanations as to exactly what that means. But this is one example that the story of creation as told in the Torah, while we believe in Judaism that God created our world, and the story of creation in the Torah is true, clearly all the details in the story of creation were not meant to be taken at face value. 
such as God creating light. Clearly, God didn't take, create light as we know it. So clearly, some of those details in creation were not meant to be taken at face value. What exactly it does mean? Is it some sort of spiritual force? Is it the potential for light? Is it energy? What exactly is it? Is a discussion of its own. And a couple... And in fact, the details of the story of creation are really quite cryptic when you read them and very hard to figure out even what the Torah is actually saying. We did a class a couple months ago, you may recall, right before Rosh Hashanah this year, on exactly what we believe happened or the various possibilities of what we believe happened in the story of creation. But clearly there are parts to that story of creation. While we do believe God created our world and continues to control our world, and we do believe, of course, that every detail in the story of creation is the divine and the word of God, but it's clear that at least some of the details in that story are not meant literally. Exactly which details are not meant literally and what they do mean, like I said, is really a subject of a topic of its own. Yes, Bill? The answer is yes. We believe that God is in control of our world. Now, why does God allow bad things to happen, I think, is the biggest question of all. We've done multiple classes before discussing that question, and uh, God willing, we'll do it again. But it seems that every single class that we do comes back to that question, why God causes bad things to happen. Ultimately, we don't have a good answer. That's why the question keeps coming back. I don't want to discuss it right now. Yes. Okay, let's let's move on. Yes. Whether the days are meant to be take, li- taken literally or not, as I mentioned before, we discussed that in great detail in the class that we did on evolution on, and, and creation, and uh, I'm going to refer you to there um, so that we could move on to other parts of the Torah. Now, the Torah speaks many times of, about how God communicated with various individuals. In this week's Parsha, God appears to Moses at the burning bush. He spoke to all of Israel at Mount Sinai. Now, we often struggle with the idea of God speaking to people because at least I could speak for myself. God never spoke to me. So I can't imagine what it would be like. In fact, I don't know anyone, at least anybody sane, whom God, who thinks that God spoke to them either. So, so it's something that we've never experienced that we don't know anyone who has really experienced that. So it's hard for us to relate to God speaking to people. And yet, the belief that God speaks to humans is one of the fundamental beliefs of Judaism. We're covering a lot of fundamental beliefs in this class, but it's also one of the fundamental beliefs of Judaism. Because without communication from God, we would not have the Torah and we would not have the commandments. 
The only way we can have a Torah, which we believe is the word of God, is divinely, was divinely dictated by God to Moses, is if God communicates with humans. If God does not communicate with humans, we would have no way of knowing what God wants. We would have no instructions from God. So we definitely believe that God does and can and did communicate with humans. And though we haven't seen it, we do believe God communicates. How exactly God communicates, what it feels like, we did another class on that subject too. Um, We did a class on prophecy, on the Jewish belief in prophecy, uh, or godly communication. But we definitely believe God speaks to people and spoke to people. And so when the Torah describes God speaking to people, it's clear that we do believe, while we don't believe God speaks, that's a using human terminology for God, but we do believe God communicates with people, and we do believe that every time the Torah describes God, anywhere really in Tanakh and Scripture, where it describes God appearing to individuals, the individual did have a prophetic experience where God communicated with them and they were certain of God's communication. And we do believe that they are real events, um, again, without which we would not have the basics of Judaism. Why can't we talk to him now and ask him questions? We can talk to him now. We definitely can talk to him. The question is whether we hear his answers. Why prophecy doesn't exist anymore? Why? Um, God doesn't communicate to most people. God rarely communicates to people. Um, in a way, it would be easier if God communicated to us, but perhaps God doesn't want it to be easy. Yes, he made it difficult. Yes. Yes, Bill. I already spoke about that a moment ago. I said, God has never spoken to me. I said that already. And I don't know anybody saying whom God ha- who told me that God spoke to them either. Why God doesn't speak to me? Yeah. He either feels that I'm not deserving or feels that I don't need it or both. Or maybe he just has nothing to tell me. I don't know. We, we, we did a class previously on prophecy. I don't want to again get into the details. We're touching on lots of other subjects today. Um, we did a class on prophecy. We spoke about what kind of people God speaks to. You've got to be a very unique individual for God to speak to. Regular people like me, God doesn't speak to. And we spoke then in greater detail exactly what it takes to get God to speak to you and who God speaks to. But that's... Again, a subject of its own. But we do believe that God communicates with, he, with humans. We do believe that God communicates with humans. So when the Torah describes God communica- God's communication with humans, whether at Mount Sinai with Moses or with others, um, we definitely believe it to be taken at face value. Now, the stories of the Torah also involve many miracles. Events that don't fit into our experience of nature or our experience of reality. Some classic examples of these miracles are the stories of the Exodus. Ten plagues, miraculous events, the splitting of the sea. 
the falling of the manna that came down every day and fed the people for 40 years in the desert. Moses extracting water from a rock. All miraculous events, not natural events, that don't happen. We struggle with these events because they break the laws of nature. Something that we don't see in our own experience. We generally accept that the laws of nature are absolute and can't be suspended. And yet the Torah describes these events. Not only does the Torah describe these events to have happened, the Torah is very clear that these events were miracles. They were not natural. There's been an attempt for thousands of years, going back to Talmudic times already, to try to explain away these miracles as being natural events. And while one may try to explain them, the Torah makes it very clear that they were not natural events. So if we believe the Torah's tale of it, we would by extension also believe the Torah's description that these events were miraculous, break, suspending the, law, the rules of nature. Now, can miracles happen? Well, if we believe the Torah is divine, we, and every word of the Torah is divine, and the Torah said that miracles happened, then we would believe that God suspended nature for these particular events. In fact, it's a basic belief in Judaism that God not only created our world, but God controls our world and has the ability to manipulate it at will. Whether to manipulate it within nature, in other words, cause nature to act in various ways, um, because we, don't, we believe nature is not entirely predictive. I think science is coming around to that too nowadays, um, already for some time. And there's some, there's some, um, uh, there's some unpredictability in nature, so God can manipulate nature as is. We also believe that God, when he chooses, has the power to suspend the laws of nature. After all, he's the creator. He created our universe, and he created the rules. If he created the rules, he could break them at will. Who decided the laws of physics should be exactly as they are? He did. So if he chooses, he could break them. He's the one that made the rule. He could break the rule at will. Now, to be clear, we recognize that God made the rules of physics and the rules of nature. If he made them, he's not going to break his own rules. So while he can break them, he's not going to. He made them for a reason. There's a reason why he made the rules. He made them so that our world should run in a natural, predictable way. He wants us to have rules. He wants the world to run in a natural way. And so God doesn't generally choose to break his rules, which is why he doesn't usually perform miracles. However, on very rare occasions, such as during the period of the Exodus, which is the period in history that the Torah deals with, God did perform miracles, breaking his own rules. And so we believe in Judaism that God can and did perform miracles. And therefore, we believe that the events that are described in the Torah clearly as being miracles, such as the ten plagues, the splitting of the sea, the manna, the Moses getting water from a rock, these events described clearly in the Torah as miracles were, in fact, times where God chose to suspend laws of nature, as we know them, um, and do things that would be impossible. 
So there are definitely miracles in the Torah, and we do believe that miracles can and did happen. Now, why miracles don't happen today is a very good question. The short answer, as we said earlier, is God created laws of nature, so he's not going to break his rules unnecessarily. Um, and it, but it's really a subject of another class, and we did do a class previously on why we don't see miracles anymore. Wait a second, Rabbi. Yes. We are seeing miracles every day, especially since 1948. We see miracles... If you look for it, you see it. Yeah, if you look for it, you see it. So there are two types of miracles, um, which I touched on in brief, and I don't want to get into great detail on miracles, um, but there are miracles where God manipulates nature, and miracles where God suspends nature. Two different types of miracles. Miracles of good, that where God manip- manipulates nature, we see daily in our lives. God manipulating nature. All sorts of things happen in our lives. Unexpected um, blessings that God gives us. It happens all the time. And we see it on, on a global scale too. Um, laws where, uh, miracles where God suspends nature is extremely, extremely rare. Yes, then. Excellent question. You're getting back to the question that Bill asked earlier, why God allows bad things to happen. That's an excellent question. It's a subject of its own, and it keeps coming up again and again. That's a great question. Yes, Bill. Yes. Can God make a mistake? That's an excellent question. Let's leave it for another time or for after the class. How many classes are we going to have? Yes, Mark. We have them every week. Could the miracles be considered similar to what we talked about earlier about some form of exaggeration? No, because the Torah. No, because the Torah clearly describes them as miracles. In other words, the Torah doesn't just say that there were ten plagues. The Torah says that God told Moses to tell Pharaoh that he is going to make miracles. And these miracles are going to be the ten plagues. The Torah makes it very clear that these events were miraculous. So they weren't just, you know, embellishments or maybe, you know, exaggerations or metaphors. The Torah is very clear that God told Moses to make miracles. So it, it's clearly described that these things actually happened. And again, it is a basic belief in Judaism that God can suspend nature when he chooses to do so, though he rarely, rarely does. So we're running out of time, but I'd like to cover... There's a lot more in the Torah that um, fits into our topic today about did these stories really happen? So let's dive in now to some details in the Torah that are not particularly described, stories in the Torah that are not particularly described as miraculous events like the Exodus. Um, But they still sound strange or somewhat challenging to relate to. So we dive into the details of the Torah, go back to the beginning. We spoke about creation very briefly. Uh, We do believe in creation, though clearly some of the details there are not meant to be taken at face value. Um, the beginning of the Torah has some very interesting stories about Adam and Eve in the Garden of Eden. And the story of Adam and Eve in the Garden of Eden is a subject of its own, 
But some parts of the stories are very, very challenging um, to understand how they happen realistically. For example, there doesn't appear to be any Garden of Eden today, not that we know of. Any kind of magical garden or um, you know, special Garden of Eden, that doesn't necessarily mean it didn't exist. It could have once existed and then fallen apart. God originally made a garden and then let it go after Adam and Eve were banished from this garden. And yet the story in the Garden of Eden is somewhat strange because we have a snake that talks, which is strange, right? And we have a tree with fruit where if you eat from the fruit, it gives you knowledge. So did the story happen exactly as described or not. So over here we get into what really became a big debate um, some 800 years ago among Jewish commentators of the Torah, where there were those, such as Maimonides, who took what we could call today a more rationalistic approach to these stories and said, well, the Torah doesn't describe this clearly as a miracle. Um, It's not a miraculous event. The Torah just describes it as a story that happened. Um, it's outside of normative occurrences. It's not normal for snakes to talk, nor is it normal for trees, for fruit, to suddenly give you this epiphany of knowledge. And so therefore, my money says, well, at least the story or parts of the story, we should take as a metaphor, not take it at face value. There were others, um, Ramban, Ramosha, Benachman, and others that say, nope, the Torah tells the story, we should indeed Take it at face value. After all, the Torah says this is what happened. It's strange, but God can make strange things happen. And so both approaches have been taken by Jewish scholars. I think we could say both are legitimate to some extent. Um, I would say that most scholars have taken the second approach, taking the Torah at face value, and so do the Midrashim, uh, many of the Midrashim, take it at face value, but there clearly were many what we could call rationalists that took these kind of stories that are not described in the Torah explicitly as miracles, but beyond regular human experience and beyond even what we would call nature, um, and say, you know, they shouldn't really be taken at face value. It's rather a metaphor. Many struggle with the story of Noah. Um, the, no- the Noah story tells us how um, everyone on earth perished in a flood, in this massive flood that covered the whole earth. And Noah took two of each animal and put them in his ark and somehow survived in the ark for a lo- long, lengthy period of time, a year, mm-hmm. uh, with all the animals. And then everyone left the ark and humanity and mm-hmm. all things were recreate, were re, um, and all um, of life was regenerated. Now, it's hard to understand from many, except from many perspectives. Um, It's hard to accept. We know that there were peoples in all sorts of far-flung places um, that were there for a very, very, very long time, um, probably long before Noah, uh, places like the Americas or or Australia, even the Far East or deep, deep in Africa, that were there for a long time and be hard to trace them Back to Noah. Um, I should mention that the, there are parallels of the story of the flood in a lot of other cultures too. Um, but 
Regardless, it's also hard to imagine how every single animal, we know there's animals in many different places, every single animal was on the flood, or was on the ark. So there's some debate among commentaries here again. Was the flood indeed everywhere? Did it cover the entire earth? Or maybe it only covered a certain part of the earth. Maybe it only covered the Middle East or chunks of the Middle East. In that of, in event that it only covered the Middle East, people living beyond the Middle East would have been saved, would not have been harmed. And there are definitely different commentaries debated about this question. I don't have a definitive answer. Um, again, if we take the story of Noah at face value, it would be hard to imagine the animals on the ark um, all living together. It would clearly be a miraculous event to be able to keep that many animals alive for a year, each one independently, um, however many animals it would have been, but thousands of species um, alive on a yeah. tiny ark for a year and feed them and care for them, each one, um, and them all surviving um, outside of their natural habitat would be very, very hard to imagine other than it being a miraculous event um, with, again, suspending the laws of nature. Again, with the story of Noah, we get into this debate <clears throat> between scholars that took the more rationalist approach, um, seeing it at least not of, I don't know if anyone sees Noah as a metaphor, but seeing it at least the details not entirely that it covered the entire earth and took every single animal, um, but rather more limited than those who saw it indeed at face value um, as it actually is. Is the entire story just symbolic? Uh, I don't think anybody sees the story as just symbolic that I'm aware of, but there are definitely many rationalist commentaries that see it as limited. Now, throughout the rest of the Torah, there are many unusual things that happen. One thing that's often pointed to is people appear to live extremely long lives. Before Noah, people are living close to 1,000 years, 900 years is kind of the average um, life span. Even after Noah, for the next couple hundred years until Moses, people are still living hundreds of years with Moses topping it out at 120 and his, um, Joshua topping it out at 110. <clears throat> and it's not till a little, time, little after Moses that we start seeing people living normal lifespans, what we would consider normal 70 years, 80 years, the normal, regular lifespans. Um, it's fair to presume that the Torah meant the long lives literally at face value, although there have been some rationalists more recently who suggested that it shouldn't be literal. Um, it's not impossible. It's simply outside of our current experience. Would it be possible for humans with slightly different DNA that allows them to better resist disease and infection and age at a slower pace to live significantly longer? There's no question that it's theoretically possible. How it actually happened or did it actually happen? I guess it's up for debate whether it should be taken at face value. It would be hard to read the Torah and not take it at face value because it's described in so many places so many times in the Torah um, how people lived longer and then the years gradually shortened. Um, could humans change and do humans change? They almost certainly do change. We know that um, human makeup does change over time. Um, could it have changed that significantly to make us live significantly shorter lives? It's definitely possible. How exactly to explain it um, is really, again, a class of its own and um, deserves its own discussion. Yeah. 
there's been, in re very recently, there's been rationalist approaches to try to explain it differently. Early um, classical Jewish rationalists like Maimonides and Ibn Ezra did not see it as, uh, took it at face value. Now we find other unnatural events happening in the Torah as well. One thing that happens a couple times is um, angels appearing as humans, such as angels that visited Abraham. Later, Jacob wrestles with an angel. Later in Tanakh, there are many people that, have, that see angels. Joshua and um, Manoach, Samson's father, there's others that see angels. So commentaries again debate if such a thing is truly possible with Maimonides, who took the more rationalist approach, saying that these stories in the Torah are actually just dreams. Abraham's experience with the three men did not actually happen, but it was a, it was a, um, it was a, a dream or a, a vision that he had. It wasn't an actual story. Other rationalists, like Ibn Ezra, um, Raubag, and other rationalists suggest that the angels described in the Torah were humans who were told by God to do various things um, as prophets, or were humans that were even unknown to them, made by God to do various things. But they were real humans. Um, they just had various missions sent by God, but they actually weren't angels. Some, though, do believe, many of the Torah's commentaries, Rashi, the Ramban, and many others, do believe that angels can appear in human form, and did during this biblical period, although we don't know anybody who's experienced that, nor do we know anyone who's experienced it recently. Again, it's possible there's other miracles in the Torah, described in the Torah, that we definitely believe regardless, because the Torah describes them as miracles, and if we would believe the Torah to be divine, we would believe those to be miracles. Um, did these events happen as described or not? Again, it depends on what, the approach that you take. Some take a more rationalist approach. If it's not explicitly described in the Torah as a miracle, we should assume that it didn't happen as described, while others say, no, it could be a miraculous event, even if not explicitly described in the Torah as a miracle. So, in conclusion, we definitely, Jews believe that the Torah is the word of God. Every word in the Torah, even minor words, even stories, come from God and are divine words. Now, how we know the Torah is true, we'll talk about God willing another time. But we do believe the Torah to be true. We do believe it to be the word of God. We therefore believe every detail in the Torah is true. We do believe God created our world, communicates with humans, and can control and manipulate nature at will. Those are all fundamental beliefs in Judaism. When the Torah describes creation, when the Torah describes Miracles, when the Torah describes communication with humans, we believe that actually happened. There are times, though, in the Torah where the Torah describes certain things that are clearly metaphor, such as when it describes things that humans would normally, employs human speech of exaggeration, or where it describes God in humanistic terms, or in the story of the creation, where certain things are simply impossible, or in places where the Torah's description is then explained by our oral tradition to not be taken literally, but to be metaphor. In all those instances, clearly the Torah's words are not meant to be taken at face value. There are, however, other places in the Torah 
where the Torah describes things that appear unrealistic, but are not clearly miracles or God communicating with humans. How do we understand those particular events in the Torah, those particular things in the Torah? There's been two different approaches taken by um, Jewish commentaries um, going back 800 years. Um, Some take a more rationalistic approach where they say if it's not realistic and not explicitly described in the Torah as something miraculous, we should assume that it's not meant to be taken at face value. It's either a metaphor or it should be understood in context in a more limited form. Others say that no, while miracles did happen throughout the Torah, even when not described as miracles, it was perhaps a different time when things happened differently and uh, they should be taken at face value. So both approaches have been brought in, Ju- in Judaism, in Jewish, among Jewish commentaries and Jewish scholars, and I think we could say both are legitimate. So I thank you for joining. Just to remind you, I know there's a lot of questions today. Um, just to remind you, this coming Friday night, we're going to be doing a, co- we have a comedian coming, we're going to be doing a Chinese dinner. Um, what, and I know there's a lot of questions, I'll take them in just a moment. Um, and uh, I, I know we used to do this, we stopped, but someone asked me again that we restart it, that we do the benching, the blessing after the meal at the end of our class, so we don't, so we thank God for what we ate. I have a couple copies here. You want to just quickly give them out, and we'll read it together, and then we, I will take any questions that people have.